The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. And after that, I dropped a uh, GPU-12 at the uh, same position. Um, remember, it was my first live delivery, if you could say so. Uh, and uh, I remember being, you know, I was sweating like hell afterwards. And transmitting to my wing, hey, it's very hot today. I said, okay, well, you're sitting in the same cockpit as you do with the same air condition. So I guess uh, it's just... You're just psyched up. Yeah. Uh, but it was like uh, the experience of, uh, you know, extreme clarity. You you were like, you're just there at, in this moment. You didn't think about what happened uh, 30 seconds ago. And you didn't think about what's going to happen in the next three or five minutes. You were just there and subconscious was doing all the right things with your muscle memory was running around. And uh, the checklist was just, uh, you know, the outcome of training and training and training and training just it was fun afterwards to see okay how did that work in the in the real world Matt, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your busy day. We got a lot to talk about today. Um, you got quite a storied career. I'm just going to hit a couple little highlights, and then I'm going to hand the talking stick over to you. But you first flew the F-16 in 1993, over 4,000 hours in the Viper so far, 100 combat missions. You participated in Operation Enduring Freedom. Unified Protector, Inherent Resolve, and I'm missing Allied Force, right? So, Correct. Um, a lot to kind of dig in here, but that's the surface level from from me. Can you give me the 60 to 90 second kind of elevator pitch of who you are, a little bit of your background, and we'll dive into it? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm uh, obviously a Danish uh, fighter pilot uh, who's been flying pretty much for 30 years. Yeah. Been in all the... Uh, F-16 squadrons that are in the Danish Air Force, which is not four uh, anymore, but um, we're down to uh, one or maybe two. And it's, uh, you know, uh, the record just uh, pretty much says in uh, short terms that uh, I'm an old guy. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, you say the, the squadrons are paring down, but the Danish Air Force has accepted its first F-35, if not two. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of joined uh, right after the... Um, the Cold War stopped pretty much, so we were still geared for, um, for you know, uh, uh, Soviet invasion or Warsaw Pact uh, stuff. And when I joined the Air Force, we had more than more than uh, I guess a hundred combat aircraft in Denmark. Okay. And Denmark is a small country, and it was about uh, six squadrons. Uh, we had four F-16 squadrons, and we had two uh, with the F-35 Dragon, which was a Swedish fighter bomber and not the F-35 we know today. Right. So we, it was it was kind of um, uh, armed, or, you know, Air Force, um, which was ready for some kind of uh, war of attrition. And then after uh, after the meltdown uh, on the east side of the um, Iron Curtain, it, it started to uh, change things in uh, Denmark, or, or 
pretty much every NATO country, I guess, and um, we cut all the um, F-35 Dragon squadrons, the two uh, squadrons there. So we had f- uh, four F-16 squadrons in the beginning of the uh, 90s. Okay. And uh, we had two uh, in um, a base up north uh, called Aalborg and two south in Skrydstrup. And uh, after, I think in the 2001, we uh, shot down one squadron in Aalborg and 2005 we shot down the second squadron and then we only had two squadrons in uh, Skrydstrup. And then uh, a few years ago, uh, we kind of cut one of the squadrons and made a, a bigger size squadron, which was uh, what we were, were gonna gonna transform into the F-35 uh, Lightning II squadron. Okay. But now again, things are kind of uh, changing and, and you know, uh, I think everybody in on the Western side uh, is uh, starting to look at what we um, kind of are missing if we should uh, be able to uh, have a war of attrition again. Interesting, because I can see after the Iron Curtain fell, as you kind of alluded to, then the, the war of attrition or you know the hordes coming across the gates, not necessarily much, so much of a threat, but still being a NATO country, I imagine that's probably the big draw for all these operations, allied force, uh, unified protector, inherent resolve, enduring freedom, etc., What's the like the temperament, or can you put your thumb on the pulse for Denmark and kind of the, I guess app that aptitude the uh, the willingness to participate in a lot of these like the and we talk like actually you know the society yeah. itself. Yeah, I think uh, what happened was that uh, of course we we should be able to defend our own country. Uh, during the Cold War, and uh, when when the Iron Curtain uh, disappeared, we were looking for um, what are we supposed to do with the Air Force. So we were transforming it into like an expeditionary Air Force, being able to uh, yeah go outside uh, our country borders and um, pretty much do stuff with the U.S. Air Force right. or the United States uh, whenever it was uh, kind of needed. So it was kind of a transition, you know, where, where uh, I was doing what I was doing uh, to protect my country for, you know, God and king and country. Um, and suddenly uh, it was another game. There should be another reason for me to do what I was supposed to do. So now it was, was like, uh, you know, I was doing this for a better world. I hoped so, at right. least. So that kind of a change in in um, the perspective of uh, being a pilot in the Air Force. Yeah, interesting. We can chat a little bit more about that too as we go on. But I want to jump back to the beginning. So you initially enlisted in the Army. Can you talk to me like what was the impetus? What what drove you wanted to join and kind of go down this path? And obviously going from the Army to the Air Force, there's some talk there. Yeah, it was like... Uh, of course, I saw Top Gun uh, yeah. <laughs> when I was in gymnasium at that time, but but you know I also uh, found uh, Air Force interesting. But uh, at that time, I should I think the contract length was like ten years, and for me, oh. it was the rest of my life. I mean, I, <laughs> I was just I couldn't couldn't uh, jump into that. Right. But um, I thought about going into uh, the army as a reserve officer. My dad had done that, so. If he could, I should be able to do that too, I thought. Um, 
and it was like a two year uh, where you were first being educated to become a sergeant and then um, a first lieutenant and then you had like one year educating um, soldiers uh, in a platoon and uh, I think I mean I was scared death uh, the first month in the army of course um, uh, total transition from uh, this uh, civilian life where my biggest concern was to uh, being able to breathe that was pretty much the only thing I should take care of myself and then right. coming into the arming and uh, you know demands uh, from morning to late evening and being tired uh, being pushed around and stuff but after a while you found out that well it, it wasn't that bad it was doable and I remember in uh, I was about to be finished with my two-year period uh, and I saw this poster saying become a, a pilot in the Air Force and kind of looked at it and said okay that looked pretty cool that dude had some some nice sunglasses on uh, sitting <laughs> there in big watch in, uh, in that yeah exactly in that cockpit so I might uh, I might phone that number uh, so I don't regret it when I become an old man sitting there and saying why did I never yeah try to get into um, to the Air Force as a pilot. So it was kind of like uh, coincidence or like just going with stream, I guess. So it's never been my, you know, the biggest desire in my life to become a pilot. Uh, I think it was just average, like a lot of other young uh, guys at that time. So, uh, but I, I mean, I'm so glad and it, it I just found um, my path and it's uh, yeah I never never ever looked back for a single moment interesting because you know that time period so 91 92 you know uh, the U.S. Air Force is kind of going through a drawdown because obviously you wrapped up the Cold War and then um, Desert Storm and then a lot of guys are going still going through pilot training but they end up getting banked so they send them off to random staff jobs or they just get cut loose altogether. So was was in that time period, was it really competitive? Was there really any change? Were there any dynamics going on? I mean... I think in the Danish Air Force, I think we had the, the greatest amount of uh, young people who want to become uh, pilots. At, uh, yeah, I think it must have been one of the largest amount of uh, young guys uh, want to go into the Air Force at that time. And... I do remember being at Shepherd that uh, I think they only had one, one fighter guy uh, on my ninety-three or five, and I think the rest was uh, bank fighters or tankers yeah. or C5s or whatever. But but in Denmark we were not um, we we had like we were extremely vulnerable to uh, the infrastructure in the commercial airlines pretty much when they needed pilots they were. They were taking everybody from the Air Force. And then it took like five, six, seven years before they needed pilots again. And then we blew up. Right. So in fact, when I started, I came into the squadron. We were like, we were pretty much four full squadrons uh, flying F-16 in Denmark. And, you know, when, when um, commercial airlines again opened up, it was about 96, 97. We, we were like four or five peoples, or four or five pilots in each squadron. It was like... You had two, three, four aircraft per pilot. So that's, uh, <laughs> that was, that was kind of crazy. That's a, yeah. That's yeah. A wild problem. It is. 
Uh, I've talked about on the podcast, the, you know, our Air Force is it's still going through this pendulum swing. Airlines higher, people are getting out. All I mean, all sorts of dynamics go into it. Um, but it is interesting to hear that because imagine, so if you have a hundred jets, you're probably what twenty five to thirty five pilots per squadron, maybe forty. Uh, you know, is, is probably what the healthy number would be, or is that? I mean, is that a fair statement? I think at that time we were probably, uh, I think around 20, 18, 20 pilots per squadron. Okay. And then when, when commercial airlines opened up in uh, 96, 97, like, so I was, I was a pretty young, I mean, I was the youngest guy in the squadron pretty much. And, yeah. uh, but went to like, a, into, straight into a captain uh, position um, because we were nobody uh, left in the squadron. Yeah. How much were you flying then? If you had that many jets, was all the time. Yeah. Just Three times a day, sometimes. You know, like it was like uh, two hundred hours a year. Okay. Yeah. The, I imagine too, you're probably doing a lot of BFM. Exactly. Not, yeah. So we 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 had the you know we had the old uh, block ten and block fifteen F16s and. At that time, we only had um, heaters as uh, sidewinder missiles, yeah. uh, the Lima and November models. So it was no no air ramps, no uh, spare, no nothing. So it was like you had to do uh, BFM all the day. So it was like one v one or two v two ACM. Uh, no beyond uh, visual range, uh, and that was pri- uh, that was half the time. The other. T- Half was, uh, you know, air to ground with the uh, bombs and rockets. Uh, no target pot, no lacing, no nothing. So it was a lot of uh, turning and burning. And it was like, um, you know, you, your, your skills for flying was like uh, the main f- uh, factor uh, for you to become a good pilot at the time. Not like today where you really have to be a good uh, system operator also. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Because I think maybe a lot of people don't realize just, you know, from what the F-16 was, your day VFR fighter, and then how it's evolved into these complex mission sets, long-range fights, air-to-air. Exactly. Uh, you know, doing C, D, all these different things, and even, like, cruise missile intercepts as the just thing. Yeah. So you really – I think flying the F-16 is easy. Operating all the systems and managing the formation and the tactics, that's the, that's the hard part. But when you go out there and just doing BFM, it's mano v mano, you know, to go out there and see who can get get around the circle fast enough. Yeah, exactly. And get in the ways. Yeah, we were getting pretty good at it at that time, flying all that BFM and ACM. Compared to, I mean, today we might fly it uh, uh, four, five, six times a year. At that time, we were flying it four, five, six times uh, a week, maybe yeah. a, <laughs> two weeks. Well, I think it's important to point out too. So I said four thousand hours in the beginning, but if you th- you know, now, I mean, a lot of my hours are seven hours at a pop orbiting in a, in a circle doing close air support and things like that, or pond crossings, but 4,000 hours for you, there's probably an, a lot of up and down the ladder time, uh, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of starts. Yeah, there is, but, but still, you know, when, when we go on, uh, international operations, I have those seven hour missions too. And I know that drill, yeah. um, loitering around waiting for something to happen. Every now, every now and then it does. Um, So the transition to the Air Force, you called the number, you get picked up, 
And then you go to NJIP, Euronado Joint Jet Pilot Training out in Shepherd, Texas. Can you talk to me a little bit about that experience and how, how was it like going through that? Yeah, it was uh, it was a great experience. I mean, it was the first time for me to be really away from home. Um, uh, together with, uh, we, of course, American guys, and we had British guys and Belgium and, uh, and German guys in, in uh, my flight. Uh, and it was, I mean, you had to climb this huge mountain and you didn't know what it really looked like. And it was just uh, a, gr- a great challenge and uh, just a, um, extremely a positive experience for me to go through Shepard. It's damn hard work, you know. Yeah, I, I had that um, kind of attitude when I, I began saying, "Okay, you you might not have the skills. It might be where my dreams of become a pilot stops. But it should be like if it happens, I should be able to look at myself in the mirror and say, okay, you did everything you could.'" And I really, I mean, I could have been to Davis a bit more and drinking some more beers in the beginning. But I, I mean, I, I was, I was starting uh, pretty hard uh, at that time. Well, I think uh, too. I mean, to go from Denmark, or really anywhere in Europe, to Wichita Falls, Texas, that's a quite a polar opposite place. Especially probably back in the in the early '90s, you're not connected, you know, via FaceTime and things like that. So you really kind of, I would imagine, plopped out of your comfort zone, big time. Yeah, but the good thing is that the other guys. Were at the same place as I was, so uh, you were not alone on that account. Uh, but it was it was a, a big change, really, and also, I mean, you also proved to yourself that you were able to um, handle that on your own. Uh, so, so it uh, it was good in a lot of ways, I think, uh, for me as uh, just personal um, development. Yeah, absolutely. Did you do F-16 training back home, or did you do it in the United States? Yes, we did. Uh, we did it uh, in uh, in country at that time. Okay. And I was pretty. Uh, I was. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm from another part of uh, Denmark than uh, than Jutland, where we have the uh, Air Force bases, and uh, I didn't really care if I was going to uh, Aalborg or to Skudstrup to fly F-16, but I came to Aalborg. And it was, um, I, I was pretty glad uh, because there's there's a kind of difference in how uh, it is orchestrated in Aalborg. Uh, pretty much all the pilots live close together, but in Skudstrup they are split pretty far apart. So okay. the, the the social uh, life, um, the brotherhood, um, the come together after work stuff, it was um, it was. Um, yeah, world class in in all ball pretty much. Uh, to be um, to be humble about that, it's hard to be humble about it. Sorry. So I came there, and, and then and we were five guys coming from uh, from Shepherd, starting uh, the conversion. And it's the flying stuff has been pretty good for me in in uh, in Egypt. Uh, I, th- I busted one ride, though it was uh, prior to T thirty seven solo and the solo checkout, and I was. Okay. Flying in the patterns with my IP there and making one excellent landing after another, <laughs> and then about to make the last landing and was it cool that it was called? I think uh, coming up on the frequency saying, "Hey, final go around, no gear, 
Oh, yeah. oh man. So um, <laughs> I had to uh, try to convince my IP on the next ride that I was good enough for. Uh, but I think I think what happened was that he was thinking, okay, Matt is pretty good at what he's doing. So it's a good student that kills you. Uh, so yeah. uh, complacency there. He shouldn't have uh, let me uh, left the perch, I guess, uh, with uh, no gear. But anyway, yeah. So, f- so the flying stuff was was um, pretty um, good for me at uh, Egypt. And coming back, you know, you had the short uh, transition where you have to fly formation, instrument, uh, start start landing stuff, all the basic, and then uh, flying should be. I mean, secondary for you now. You should be able to use uh, the aircraft as a weapon platform. And it was, uh, as we talked about earlier, um, kind of basic, uh, the air-to-air, since you only had the gun and you had uh, a heat-seeking missile. Uh, and again, uh, the air-to-ground, it was dawn bombs and rockets. Uh, so uh, the, the spectrum was uh, a little bit more narrow than it is today um, uh, concerning uh, you know the different uh, disciplines you could fly. Yeah, I think now you consider those all part-task trainers. Basically, the blocking and tackling to yeah, build the exactly. airmanship yeah. and then move on to the next phase is really yeah. doing the, the complex stuff we have going on yeah. uh, today. But anyway, it was a lot, a lot of flying. I mean, you, you as we talked about earlier, you have to, I mean, be able to fly that aircraft yeah. damn good to, to have success in the air. Uh, and I think the conversion was... Uh, was fine. I was starting to feel okay. This this is uh, this is the right place for me to be. And after one year, you you come out to the Scrotum, and um, it was kind of a big change, I think, because you've been evaluated on everything you've done for the last I don't know how many years, and now you go to the Scrotum of fly, and of course you're still being evaluated because we were looking at the uh, 20 minute uh, Betamax video tape. I guess we could. That was the information to pick out after <laughs> a flight, but but uh, then the guys who have been IPs for me were certainly uh, you know bodies in in the squadron, and I remember once uh, at a debriefing where where this uh, instructor pilot, early instructor pilot, was my flight lead, and we had been fighting some Norwegian uh, F-16s and came back for the debriefing and I was tumbleweed right after takeoff pretty much. But <laughs> my instructor pilot was standing there and saying, okay, at this point I, I lose um, SA and don't know where uh, the Norwegian fighters are. And I was like, holy crap, how can he, I mean, I mean, he, he was a kind of a guard for me, right. stand there and say he lost SA on, oh, uh, just, you know, here's my limits. Right. But I mean, after a few seconds, pretty much, I found, okay, that is cool. To be there amongst the best of the best and just admit when you're doing something wrong or when uh, your limits is, uh, yeah, you, this is how far you can go and stuff. So that was, an, uh, that was a, like the uh, f- foundation for like a really, um, uh, you know, a, a learning environment that I didn't really expect that prior to getting into a squadron. I thought again, it was like, okay, who's the biggest and tallest and, right. and fastest stuff, but, but it was like um, something totally different that, that what I would have experienced or expected at that time. 
Yeah, talk about it's it's a profound moment, and I've talked about that too. Is the like there's no rank in the debrief. Um, exactly. You you know it could be the boss who's messing up. Obviously, you, yeah. you'd be respectful, but th- that's how you learn. And uh, exactly by not having the the ego ego comes off and let's really whittle down what's going on here and what went wrong so that we can all be better. Yeah. And I think uh, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of institutions that could learn something from us about that debriefing concept there. Yeah. Just, I mean, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it's impressive how that developed over time and how it's permeated across our air forces, because I'm yeah. sure you've done some exercises with, non uh, western non nato countries where oh yes that is not the case yeah. um sitting in the shot val and clearly they're calling shots into yeah. blue players and then they start speaking secure in their own language and then oh yeah. no that shot didn't happen you know rather than yeah. owning it and fessing up so that yeah. you know everyone can learn uh, and be better so it but that that's the fun part part when you have the experience you know okay those guys are the good guys they're i want to go to war with those guys but those guys yeah we're gonna keep them just over here and a watchful eye on them exactly yeah the 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 coalition stuff gets uh gets pretty interesting to say the least um which i would like dig in dig into your experience with that but before we do that i uh i've only touched an f-16 in europe once i've landed there i fly across europe all the time now really busy airspace but can you talk to me a little bit about some of the complexities or challenges? And it could be like, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, in the U.S., there's a 10,000 foot runway, you know, every 50, 100 miles, you know. So I always have like a divert option. A lot of military fields with cables. I know you're probably using drogue shoots. Um, like, can you talk to me like, and now I know it's second nature, but. What are some of the challenges and complexities that I might not be thinking about? Yeah, in fact, we don't have drogue shoots. Uh, the Norwegians uh, had that on their F-16s. Okay. But when I began flying in Denmark, I could take off and be in contact with the tower. And I was passing 3,500 feet. I could say goodbye tower. And I didn't have to talk to anybody climbing up to 50,000 feet. That's amazing. <laughs> we In Denmark, we had like a, a totally unique airspace, um, uh, which we don't have anymore. Or it's now now can go up to uh, 19,500 feet. Okay. And then I had to uh, be in contact with somebody flying above. But at that time, it was like, I mean, you owned the sky pretty much. And I, of course, I, we were flying, uh, you know, uh, without Link 16, and it was like, well, we didn't have the world's best SA, maybe. And so I can't remember when it changed, but it kind of makes sense to make more strict rules when you get up into um, airline airspace <laughs> too. And so, yeah. but we have, we have, uh, we do have like quite a few airfields we can use in, in Denmark as uh, that word airfields. So that 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 is not like um, yeah, your risk pretty tense concerning airfields um, for diverts and stuff. But the airspace gets worse when you get down to Germany or or Belgium. Flying at TLP, uh, I did that out of Belgium. It was like you know you had this, this little square of uh, airspace, and then you had this, and I mean it was like it was like a hell <laughs> flying air to air in Europe at that time. It's, it's, it's really busy and congested down there for sure. 
Yeah. Is there a lot of inner nation uh, working? Like, you know, you said you fought the Norwegians, et cetera, or is it that just kind of limited to exercises or kind of big moments, if it, you will? I mean, if, uh, in the old days, we could kind of uh, grab the phone and call the Norwegians, hey, you want to play today? Yeah. Um, we could do the same with uh, the Dutch. Um, but today it's more like it's mostly exercises. You know, okay. the um, it's it's like uh, if we go and play with the the British guys and we got aircraft breaking down, it like it will spoil the next fourteen days of of training if we are missing one or two aircraft and stuff. So it's more it's more in connection with the exercises that we are we are training with the um, foreign countries, air forces. Okay, yeah, interesting. I want to jump to, I guess, uh, Allied Force, because that was your first named operation, if I'm correct. It's correct, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about that time period and what was going yeah, on? Yeah, it was uh, the end of the uh, 90s, and there were uh, Yugoslavia was breaking up and had a lot of turmoil down there. And uh, for me, going um, down, we were, at that time, we were converted to uh, Midlife Update F-16s in Aalborg, and Skrødstrup was the old um, uh, legacy uh, F-16. And uh, going to Italy, Grazinese, uh, north of uh, Naples, um, and it was the first time the Air Force kind of was going into war. So it was like going to this uh, Italian base with starfighters uh, together, some Norwegians, they were t- there oh. too, and, and we were living at a hotel um, near the uh, coastline, Mediterranean, a few, uh, not even a, no, no uh, Hesco Bastion, but maybe a little bit of barbed wire and stuff. Yeah. So what kind of, okay, is, is this really how it's supposed to be? And for me, going down there, was, I had a hard time seeing who is really the bad guy, you know. I think all of them kind of uh, had a small competition going of, who could do the most cruel things to to mankind, pretty much. Uh, so I was not like I was not like having this. Okay, we are definitely fighting uh, the right war. Anyway, yeah. Since it was like the first time we were going anywhere, I think on the political side it was also okay. This might be uh, some some nasty stuff or whatever. So the only thing we were flying was uh, air defense, combat air patrols. Okay. Uh, around Serbia, uh, and we 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 had, I think we were we were having um, laser guided bombs, but we didn't have any target pots. So if we were gonna drop a, a laser guided bomb, it should be laced in by maybe a yeah, a British tornado or whatever. And if that bomb didn't hit, was that Danish responsibility or a UK uh, responsibility? I think there was a lot of thoughts uh, going on there. So. Uh, pretty much only flying uh, flying um, a defensive counter-air. And we didn't have any uh, engagement with anybody uh, at that time. But that was the first time for me flying those long missions, you know, uh, being on station for three, four hours, air-fueling um, three, four, five times, and and uh, back and forth. So often the, 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 you know, the biggest enemy is um, to stay awake. Uh, on those missions, that's yeah, it, it's, that's and it's, it can't be a battle. We we don't have any uh, uppers or or downers no, no, or anything. Oh, so yeah, um, 
but then in, in the the end of of uh, the conflict uh, we had like two missions or something like that with uh, aircraft from Skrudstrup you know the legacy um, uh, F-16 with no GPS or anything flying in and dropping uh, some uh, dump bombs on on a, a target uh, yeah in the middle of nowhere I guess so it was like you know uh, what, what is what is uh, war about and you know flying around uh, coming back uh, at the base, going to the hotel, uh, jumping in the pool, asking for a pina colada. Mm, is this uh, really how war is supposed to be? Uh, but anyway, it, it was like, it was uh, a political level, on an uh, Air Force level, on a high level. It was like the first time we, we really were um, going out to see what is all this about to the war thing, you know. You mentioned the midlife upgrade, the MLU. Can you talk to me, what did that bring to the F-16 versus uh, what you were flying previous blocks? Or Yeah, it was, I mean, it was bringing everything, you know, just uh, a GPS. We we had the only, the old um, ring laser gyro thing was like drifting a mile in per hour or something. I mean, (laughs) where, where the diamond was standing in the hot, you were, Damn sure it wasn't the target. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. We had to do those. Um, was it called uh, a visual reference point? I guess where we you were slewing the uh, nav platform uh, within a, a few minutes of of your TUT just to be be sure that it was uh, around or situated around the uh, the target you had. So uh, we didn't have any um, night vision goggles. Uh, we couldn't drop. Uh, JDAMs, I think. Okay. Due to the uh, the wiring system in the wings and stuff, and uh, we had like uh, we only had an, a radar scope in in uh, the aircraft. We didn't have any multifunction displays or anything. So you know, you were like, it was like it was like a P fifty one Mustang with a bigger <laughs> engine, pretty much, um, flying around that, but. Still, still the same airframe, of course. But then, right. getting the MLU, you got the options for for AMRAMs, you got the options for JDAMs. For uh, later on, we got the uh, the target pod also. So, and the multifunction displays, of course. So, so SA wise, uh, I mean, sometimes it, sometimes it's good not to have any SA, knowing how dangerous things are. But <laughs> that was um, uh, is bliss. huge jump going to a midlife update for us. Yeah, and so when you're flying the caps, I know you mentioned you obviously didn't. No, Dane dropped uh, a GBU-12 or a laser guided bomb during that employment. When you're doing the caps, though, did you pretty much, I guess, write that off, and then it's just sitting out there with? Did you have? I assume you had AMRAMs since you're doing that. You had the MLU. Yeah, we did. Okay. We did, yeah. And that's uh, the the ROE piece. That's something again too that you know really going down the rabbit hole. And I think this would lead into enduring freedom. Be a good discussion. Yeah. Just because the ROEs, I remember reading through those, like every nation has their set of ROEs. I felt yeah. with Inherent Resolve, it was a little um, more blended. Not, that's probably not the right term. They are probably more parallel. Everyone, especially in the early days, um, with the exception of probably going into Syria, everyone's doing the same thing. But Inherent or Enduring Freedom had evolved so much that every country really had specific rules as far as what yeah, they could do. Exactly. I remember. Yeah. Uh, I can't really remember in the beginning, but but definitely um, 
enduring freedom, for example, when we Afghanistan, we had like a, a totally clear political statement that we were not allowed to cross the uh, Pakistan border. I mean, nobody really knew where the border was, so there were like yeah. five different versions of that border. And and it could be kind of, uh, you know, frustrating uh, being in that area where a lot of everything pretty much went on in that border area or region. And then, ah, uh, oh, it's the Danish jets. Well, we'll just uh, call for some eight cents from background, you know. Being there, you could all see uh, the smoke from from um, from the troubles down there. But I think that was that was the, you know, on the Danish side, the political, uh, you know, getting used to what is this about and how do we wanna? We're getting more and more used to being a a, a nation in war, you know, as, as time goes here. So, and then again, a huge difference uh, going to uh, Libya. I mean, we were, we were, we could do compared to uh, to the two previous um, uh, international operations in in Libya, we were at the same sheet of music as uh, United States of America, I think. Yeah, we uh, for we we jumped over enduring freedom, but Libya, you guys were operating out of Sigonella, is that? Yeah, we were. Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? And you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Aircore Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Aircore Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself and F-16, so this is a very cool full-circle experience. These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then Aircore Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. Aircore Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircoreaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. We're um, and then... So I guess maybe it'd be a good compare and contrast like your enduring freedom time to Libya. Granted, two different nations, two vastly different conflicts, but just if you can talk to me a little bit about your experiences with both and like maybe what the, the day in the life of yeah. is like, anything that stands out. I think, out. Uh, you know, past 9-11, or, I mean, everything was turned upside down at that point. Everybody, you know, time stand, or stood still when 
when this squadron mate came into uh, the big briefing room saying, hey, somebody flew into the towers and stuff. And the first thought was, okay, we are going to war. And it was like, okay, for me, it was, um, this is a just case. I mean, it might be spelled Al-Qaeda or Taliban. Well, it, it looks the same, uh, you know. So, so I, I think we were doing the right thing here. And we went to uh, Manas uh, Air Base with the Norwegians and the uh, Dutch F-16 were flying out of there. And uh, it was, there were no Pinot Colada, no swimming pool, you know. So it, <laughs> it was more uh, Hesco Bastion and uh, yeah. watchtowers and guards and stuff. So it it was more like what you would expect uh, when you go to war. And of course we had some uh, very long uh, missions also out there. I remember we had like, I think there were 20 minutes between Osh and Dushanbe where you couldn't reach any radio station on the ground. It was just pitch dark mountains and nothing else but stars and you when you're, you're flying there with your wingman and getting into um, Afghanistan. And then uh, again, it was, when I think about it, it was a lot of loitering time, you know, again, uh, Fatigue being the biggest enemy, pretty much. Uh, I experienced one in a in a racetrack with the uh, with the tanker. Uh, you know, we're just turning south, and then I wake up inside Pakistan, pretty much, and the tanker is uh, heading north again, turning around and eating those. Uh, we could eat some uh, coffin uh, pills, and it did work at all when I was flying. It came down was awake for 36 hours and, and sick like like two days after that. So, uh, yeah. I, it, those long missions, they, they, they can kill you, really. Yeah. And uh, we would hope or beg and do anything we could to get some uppers and downers we could uh, use when we were having like crisis in the cockpit. Yeah. I, I had one specific sortie. It was in northern Syria. And it was a day, it was a crypto changeover day. And so we get up there and it's, you know, two o'clock in the morning and we cannot talk to anyone. It is just static the entire time. And I, I, that was the first time I took a go pill, but I was like, I am not going to make it. I am literally falling asleep in the jet. And I think, you know, there's obviously a, a line where you got to be careful with those things, but they really can save your butt when, you know, it's, yeah, and I think sleep cycle, whatever it might be. Yeah, and if the hour is that if you take it, then go back, land, and then get detoxed. And when the when doc says, "Okay, you you're ready again, you can go fly again," just to, yeah. just just have a procedure for that. Yeah, and like ours was pretty. You know, we had a document when we did it. You know, you had two pills that you were you were allowed to carry at a time. So obviously, if you're going back for more constantly, like it would throw up a red flag. But yeah. I mean, those things. Definitely a glove save when you're just. Yeah. But we, we had we had a um, a formation flying uh, came back to Manas and it was um, yeah all no fuck we could land bad weather had to go Ooh. back to Bagram and the first guy he lands a pretty heavy weight uh, after air refueling and it's wet and he goes off the runway in fact into a minefield ejects um, but survives. Ugh. Uh, and did he, land, uh, did he land in the minefield? No, he he went off the minefield, okay. or off the runway into the minefield. It was, uh, yeah, 
the, it wasn't being uh, cleared for mines at least. So yeah, right. Uh, and the uh, the wingman, he was just loitering, and uh, he was getting so tired. So he was like almost saying, "Okay, I, I, I might, I might eject. I mean, I'm not able to. I mean, I can't go with the uh, air refueling assets to. I can't remember. They were flying out of uh, the Indian Ocean somewhere, I guess. Um, oh, down to like Al Udeed or something. Yeah, I think yeah. so. I oh, think so. Yeah. And then uh, finally they get the the runway cleared and he can land. I think it was flying 12 hours. So, yeah. And yeah, I mean, a coffee and pill. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to save you. Hey, thanks for yeah. nothing. Yeah, thanks for nothing. Oh, yeah. What time period was that? Was that right after we, I mean, things kicked off? We were like, we were there from October 2002. So a year after a kickoff, okay. pretty much. And then um, I think October 2003, we were, we were uh, going back from there. So, but that was like, uh, that was more like you were uh, a part of the big team, I guess, uh, in it together and f- feeling and hoping that, that you could change some, something down there. But it was like, uh, I think we were only, we were not, we were dropping uh, like 16 bombs. Um, I was, I was uh, the one in the first um if you can say the hot, hot uh, close air support engagement. I was like, uh, you know, when you're flying all those missions with search and you have to look for something and uh, loiter on air fuel back and nothing really having. And then came in uh, north of, um, was it uh, Kandahar, I think, somewhere. And you have like, I think a Reaper flying around underneath you and there's a B1 above you. Okay, it's, it's, uh, it's showtime today. So, I remember talking to the uh, forward air controller and he might have had a little higher pitch than you're used to when you're doing training missions back home and you can hear the M60 machine gun shooting in the background and, you know, okay, it was kind of tense. And initially I was asked to go down and do a strafe. I think, fine, okay. But Back in Denmark, we only uh, trained uh, low angle strafe between five and 15 degrees at that time. But here there's mountains and stuff. So, okay, I think I'll dive down. That's about, okay, that's 25 degrees and shoot. And you know, at a, a way longer distance than you're used to. So I remember yeah. pulling the trigger and see, oh, you missed the target. Up oh, there they were, you know, on the, on the way up. So that, that was uh, kind of, uh, uh, interesting to do the improvisation uh, on the run, so to speak. And after that, I dropped a uh, GPU-12 at the uh, same position. Um, remember, it was my first live delivery, if you could say so. Uh, and uh, I remember being, you know, I was sweating like hell afterwards and yeah. transmitting to my wing, hey, it's very hot today. And said, okay, well... You're sitting in the same cockpit as you do with the same air condition. So I guess uh, it's just, you're just psyched up. Yeah. Uh, but it was like uh, the experience of, uh, you know, extreme clarity. You you were like, you're just there at in this moment. You didn't think about what happened uh, 30 seconds ago. And you didn't think about what's going to happen in the tr- next three or five minutes. You was just there and 
subconscious was doing all the right things with your muscle memory was running around and uh, the checklist was just, uh, you know, the outcome of training and training and training and training just, it was fun afterwards to see, okay, how did that work in the, in the real world? So, uh, and then it, it was kind of a relief also, I guess, to, to be able to uh, do what was expected of me, what I expected of myself or my family expected of me, what the Air Force expected of me. So it was like kind of a relief to get that, uh, okay, you can, you can uh, fill out that uh, flight suit and do what the Air Force is paying you for. So you mentioned this. I, I would like to probably paint the picture a little bit more because, you're t- you know, listen, all, right, all you train to is low angle strafe, you know, 5 to 15 degrees. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, for those listening, like thinking about like now basically improvising, like 25 degrees nose low when you're not used to doing it, turning the chainsaw on um, <laughs> is that is a very different thing, especially if you've never have done that. And the, I mean, the ranges are different. The The sight picture is incredibly different. Um, and too, you know, just thinking the speeds, you know, with the, the flight controls of the F-16, typically, I don't know, doing high angle strafe, 350 knots, rolling in by the time you're rolling down the chute, depending on how fast you get going. I think it was at 450 when the, the logic changes with yeah. the rudder, I can't remember, you know. And so, a um, lot, lot going on there. And uh, I don't want you to just gloss over that because that's a, uh, that's a big deal. There was so much going on. So it was first when I came back and landed at Madras that I realized that I on on the pull out from from the strafing, you know, looking for for where the bullets hit. Ah, you did, you missed the tar. There were. Yeah. I was pulling. I was overging the aircraft. <laughs> I was just so psyched up. You know, normally yeah. you, can, you can feel G's. I mean, I don't have to look at the G meters to say, okay, this is four, this is five G's. But psyched up, the adrenaline was just running through your veins and. Yeah. It, it might have felt like 4Gs, but obviously it was uh, a little bit too much. So, But anyway, the GPU-12 still worked. Yeah, t- turns <laughs> out just fine. In <laughs> um, this time period too, so 2001, 2006, you're the head of operations of the squadron. Is that equivalent to like what we say a squadron commander? Or is that like a uh, director of ops? or how is Yeah, that kind, of- kind of a director of ops, uh, you know, taking care of uh, pilots, of the training of... Uh, scheduling all that stuff yes you're doing that you're the display pilot and then also yeah beside yeah so that was like uh going i think we had like normally a period of three four maybe five years and the last one just went to um scandinavian airline system flying there so okay uh so i grabbed it uh and and you know to fly a display is just that's where you really learn to fly the the aircraft uh, with the slow speeds and the highest Gs and all the stuff. So I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, going to Britain, uh, celebrating, uh, was it 65 years of since Battle of Britain? And was just, I was single at that time, so just touring uh, Europe during That's the good. summer and stuff. So, yeah, no complaints. <laughs> no complaints. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's, I felt too doing the display, like, uh, that's when I could actually start telling the difference between different jets. Granted, you're flying the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And, but then I could start noticing slight differences in the flight control system. Maybe yeah, about a year, maybe about, true. you know, a year into it yeah. doing that. Um, which is kind of cool. I think to then feel like you have that, 
that experience and that bound to have that little bit more of awareness. Now I wasn't yeah. doing anything tactical, so that's another story. But um, interesting. So there's the one deployment to Manas, and that's Kurzakstan for those who haven't been yeah. there. Be- yeah. Beautiful during the summer, nice weather. Uh, I went through in February and then also again back in August. Yeah. February was my hell on earth. It was so cold and uh, so yeah. snow and ice. But yeah, uh, no shit. Did you do you did one one round to Kurzakstan? I was there uh, three times. Uh, okay. So almost five months uh, in total. Um, okay. So I had like uh, from October and then to like, I think last time was uh, probably uh, April. So both had uh, a bit of summer and a lot of winter. Yeah. Oof, but it was like, so... you know, flying out there, the um, air traffic control, you know, I remember, I think my third sortie going out of uh, uh, Afghanistan, we call uh, Dushanbe control. And, uh, I, I, you know, we, we were landing with like 8,000 pounds. So, okay, I light up the burner and, and uh, yeah. check in with Dushan Big Control. Uh, Dushan Big Control, uh, there's a fuck at uh, Manas. Okay, uh, thanks for that. That was probably the best call uh, yeah. for those five months you gave me there. And we're going back and uh, setting up a holding pattern. Yeah, the be- weather is getting better and stuff. And you got to see uh, the diverse field. Okay. They, they went went away and ah the weather is good now so you can come back what kind of approach do you want to fly yeah well just go in for an ILS and you go into a final approach fix and there's clouds below you you think okay I'll fly this ILS and uh, you know we, we have a, a steer point for the uh, threshold so select that and fly that ILS right down to that threshold and you have nowhere else to go there's no fuel yeah. for, for any diversion here and I'm way below many men. I mean, I mean, I was coming out at uh, 50 or 100 feet. Uh, see, no <laughs> shit. No shit. And as I break the clouds, I can hear bum, 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 bum. I'm flying into a big flock of uh, some kind of birds uh, landing. Yeah, yeah. Running down the <laughs> runway, and I can hear my wingman. He's going around. Think, oh, man. But finally, uh, he made one more shot and, and, and landed there. But... Thinking uh, ATC thing, yeah, you can choose whatever approach you want. You will come in VFR. Uh, well, yeah, hey, thanks. No trust in them. Well, you know, you hit your decision altitude, and then you get a, a few potatoes to process. So you're going to keep descending to make your decision. But 50 to 100 feet, man, just. I, I was. I, I want. I, I, my plan was just to fly it like 13 away into the ground. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you got no other options. Yeah, like no what? Other I mean, options, yeah. it's. It's a, a basket full of no fun. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. It is, it, it is what it is. Yeah. And, yeah, those things uh, present themselves from time to time. Talking to my buddies who are, you know, doing the exit of Afghanistan, you know, talk about no good options. You're flying over the country. I mean, you have yeah, no exactly. options. Um, exactly. So that, that'll that pop up from time to time. Yeah. Um, we, we talked a little bit about Unified Protector and kind of those operations. Um I want to talk inherent resolve. When uh, w- what was the role for you inherent resolve? It was a tempo there. We were inherent resolve. We were like, uh, was it in fifteen two thousand and fifteen? I guess. Uh, and I was. We were deployed to um, uh, Kuwait, Al Jaba Air Base down there. Okay. Uh, and it was like. Uh, for me, it was like, um, you know, I was starting to get my doubt about what we were doing. 
I mean, we we are we're giving the patient the same medicine and it doesn't work. You know, we we've, we've been uh, removing uh, bad guys and dictators and stuff. When when I was flying in over Libya, I was thinking, in three years' time, I'll go down there on that beach with my family, telling those happy people that uh, that bunker there is. I, I took that out, but I wasn't going to Libya. Uh, Libya was kind of chaos, chaotic. I mean, I I think uh, that the, the population probably would have been happier if uh, Gaddafi was still there. Yeah. Uh, and flying over Iraq, which was uh, just a mess. I mean. Mess and, and uh, wondering again, I wonder if if uh, those people down there were more happy uh, having the crazy dictator Saddam Hussein um, running the country. So I, I was kind of starting to lose faith in, in what we were doing. Not that, you know, I was doing my job uh, totally professional and uh, as I've done every time, but I think we were like... What what is what is what are we doing? <laughs> kind of. Um, so for me, it was more like uh, you know, uh, in the beginning, um, Yugoslavia and uh, Afghanistan. Oh, I was single at that time. Take me, take me. I can take yep. another tour and stuff. And then Libya. Um, my I had the twins. And they were about four years old at that time, and it was like oh, now. I can't just say, take me, uh, I want to go with the guys because I have uh, two kids standing over here having, um, they, they want to have a dad and I want to be their dad. So it was more like, okay, when, when, when no, my number is picked, I'm, of course I'm going to gonna yeah. go and, and do what I'm supposed to do. But I think maybe uh, maybe it's also like uh, when you're getting older, you're reflecting more uh, about what's going on and what you, what you're doing. Um, but I think it reminded me a lot about Afghanistan long missions uh, over Iraq there. Um, maybe a, a bit more action uh, than Afghanistan. But still, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you just... Uh, I think the big thing, a big difference is that you often fly in weather that you're not used to. I mean, uh, I remember that um, was out of Sikonella. We were flying like it was thunder clouds from takeoff to landing, and I, we were just able to be in, I mean, thirty-five, thirty-six thousand above the clouds, and like huge light show. It was fascinating, and then your <laughs> cabin pressure starts to run up and down. So, oh man, if I had to go down to that, I would be toasted. And get down there, you're not able to see anything. You have to move the air refueling on, uh, area to to somewhere else where you can um, get used and come back again and down to Sigonella and you I, I was one of the last guys landing and the first guys landing on, on that one was ah it's, it's really slippery uh, try to get out in the left side uh, there's a bit of braking action there and you get down and hit the brakes and nothing happens and you try to go out to the left side and the aircraft is kind of skidding sideways and you're just fully down and Okay, the, I can't see how far. Um, there was no uh, runway markers uh, at that runway. So oh, I said, yeah, I want to have the hook down. And it's night, so everything is blackened out. I have to take my um, 
right hand off the stick and my finger like okay there's the hook and hit the cable and <laughs> being drawn back up with the hook and in and it's oh, that's another day and the same we saw there in, in q8 where you, you're landing and it's snowstorm or sandstorm sorry can't see shit but okay uh, it's down there somewhere <laughs> okay i got the threshold you know fly down there and and hit it and it should work i don't know about you my uh Maybe probably the top five heart rate peaks for me, probably ever, uh, is all re revolved around landing. It's probably usually either really bad weather or, like you described, you go ahead and hit the brakes. Like, you've already dropped the nose, yeah. you've hit the brakes, and then nothing happens. And you're yeah. like, this is not where I want to be right now. Yeah. Um, well, back up. You, you struck a chord. So this, I, I'm wondering the sentiment amongst you and your peers and uh, the conversation – because I, I think there's probably some similarity. I was actually having a conversation with a buddy this weekend, and it's along the same long, long lines. I think you know, going into Afghanistan, it was like, let's go get them, right? Like let's exactly. let's make exactly. let's make let's make the world a better place. And yeah. then as this, you know, as the carousel goes around and around and around, and it really wasn't until we left Afghanistan was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Like we all knew it was going to end this way. But you can have a realization. Maybe it's because you're getting older, or it's kind of like what, like, what? Yeah, yeah, I think, what? I think I remember sitting uh, in the Chow Hall uh, at Manas Air Base and hearing, "Okay, now uh, uh, Iraq is being invaded." It's like, ah, oh, damn! Now you know that so many uh, resources going to be pulled out of yeah. uh, of your theater. So it's like, ah, and then okay, it went, yeah down the drain pretty much yeah and i think it my thing is it's humpty dumpty it fell off the wall but yeah. like there's no putting humpty dumpty back together nope. again no nope. um i do agree and i you know i think for us in the u.s we have a lot of issues with our southern border and people flowing mm. across the southern border but you know in november i think they snagged 30 iranians three of which were on the terror watch list okay um you know so we have a very porous southern border that yeah, now the problem set, in my opinion, um, you know, at some point something bad is going to happen again, unfortunately. But mm. this is, I think if you peel back the onion and you debrief, like where did it all go awry? You know, again, like, yeah, there's some people that needed to get eradicated, right? Some really bad people that need to. But the unfortunate piece in all of this, whether they're bad or good, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, good people did get, you know, it was collateral. Yeah, yeah. If, I, I think, agree. you know, humanizing it, it's like if my uncle is a really bad person and I'm a kid, like I probably don't really fully recognize that. But if he gets swacked by a 500 pounder, mm. like you don't know that. But now we've we've now created a person with yeah, and sentiment. It, and it's also it's 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 hot because um, you expect to do something against it. And the, the tools you have that you're used to using and I mean are they the right ones or I mean yeah I can't blame anybody for for uh, I mean Afghanistan was like you needed a reaction on that I mean I, I mean yep. it was like so hilarious so I think everybody was just then okay they're gonna get it now so yep. yeah it's a it's a problem set that I don't have the solution for but I think now yeah as I've gotten older and, and seen it and you have a little bit more conversations you take a step back, mm. you know, because it's probably, yeah, you know, I'm being a young guy. I was like, man, I just want to get in the fight. I yeah. want to get in the fight and do it. 
And then you start kind of looking at maybe a little bit bigger picture from a, a 30 or 40,000 foot view and yeah. maybe, uh, so not, now it's more peace and love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, my neck just hurts now. My neck and back yeah. hurts. So I got to take it yeah. easy, you know? So, um, let's talk a little about today. So you're obviously, you're still in it. Um, head of operations again, is that, uh, your current role? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, what's, uh, what's the normal day in the life of, is it pretty busy tempo or is the transition to the F 35 happening? What's, what are the dynamics? Yeah, we, we are, we are in the transition phase right now. We got the first, uh, four aircraft, uh, last September uh, or last year. Uh, and of course had, um, been training out of, uh, Arizona Luke, uh, Air Force Base. Um, for like yeah, a couple of years now uh, and like I mean it might be around 50% uh, of the pilots are, are fully committed to F-35 now and the other half is uh, F-16 so it's like it's it's all moving uh, away and uh, away from F-16 and uh, we're gonna sell uh, some jets to uh, Argentina in fact um, so interesting I, yeah it is uh, but anyway it's it, you know normal life is still uh, go out uh, do the training you have the training program you ha have to get to and then um, do the uh, QIA um, and a lot of that is uh, of course uh, with a focus uh, going east uh, to the Baltics and stuff so QIA break that down uh, quick reaction alert okay yeah okay yeah yeah um so we have that you know yeah how um with other nato nations sitting there uh i guess uh, i said we can go this like obviously you got a you got a piece of the sky that you're responsible for should russia send something westbound to go intercept you, yeah but it's, it's you no know, it's more like uh, doing the air policing you know uh okay show presence uh, it could be uh, assisting uh Civilian aircraft having problems, uh, you know, okay. look at, okay, it's the right main gear that's blown or it could be uh, just patrolling. Uh, and of course, we have to uh, do some, uh, uh, you know, uh, when we have aircraft getting close to uh, Danish um, airspace that is not squawking, is not communicating. And if you, we'll go there and, and take a look at it and see what it is. Okay. And then, of course, uh, Russia got some uh, a part of. Or, it's not that it's it shoots there, they are engaged otherwhere, other other places, but but uh, they still fly in um, in the Baltics, and we often go out there and you know follow them around when they are uh, close to our borders and stuff. So, but it it I mean it's not for us flying there. It's not like. Uh, things have changed that much uh, i think it's uh and we are not there to escalate anything so right. we are there to show them we know that you are here uh we know what you're doing and uh you know just i mean if if they're waving we are waving back um sometimes you may get a finger instead but again <laughs> that's that's life but yeah. so it's it's a uh, it's fairly very calm and fairly uh, normal, I guess. Uh, maybe we saw a, a a big drop in the beginning of the 90s of uh, 
Russian activities there right after it all crumpled. Uh, but then it's like I think it's uh, it's fairly normal what we see um, when we do the um, the uh, yeah reaction alerts scrambles into the eastern part of uh, our territory. Yeah, I know it, it happens for us out over Alaska on a yeah. like fairly routine basis. Probably the news is a little bit more dramatic. You know, the flanker hitting the the drone. Yeah, that's um, true. That's true. A little bit more aggression yeah. down down that way. But I also think, too, like looking at it, it's like, I don't know any fighter pilot that in the right mind would want to hit another aircraft. Um, so I think that probably some shenanigans or yeah. poor, poor, poor airmanship. Yeah, yeah, or um, whatever it is. And sometimes you know, uh, I don't I don't know about their uh, navigational skills or their uh, how precise are their platforms and stuff. So if they get a little bit too close uh, to a board or something, is that on purpose or is it just like the, the aircraft sucks and uh, the pilots yeah. have flown for two months or something? So um, that's. It's like I think that's very about like anyone if going and sitting in one, you know we have like out of the petting zoo. Yeah, I, I mean the ergonomics of those things are yeah. horrendous. I got a backseat ride in a Mig twenty nine once. A Did Polish you? One. Yeah, it was yeah, horrible. How was that? I mean, like, yeah, it, it was <laughs> yeah, horrible. Right. I mean you you're sitting <laughs> like uh, I, uh, I would be glad that it was not able to air refuel and only had like oh. you know flying time for forty minutes or something like that, and it was like. Yeah. I don't think they had any uh, like uh, hotas hands on throttle and stick. Well, like you had to move the your hands all the time to to flip switches some some other places in the cockpit. So I don't know if this story is true or not. I was flying with a guy recently, um, and he was saying I think the Russian Knights they first maybe they went to the Abbotsford Air Show out in Canada, but they came across the U.S. This is the early nineties. And he was talking. They, you know, they picked the, some F-15s, picked them up off the coast, and were escorting them in. But as they started their descent, when they're back at idle, like their motors would flame out. They would just watch them restarting <laughs> their motors all the way down. Um, so when you talk about like the ergonomics. They've always yeah. lagged with like engine technology. Engine technology mm -hmm. is the winner, right? So if you can figure out engine technology, you win. But um, I thought that was kind of kind yeah. Of I, th I think my my impression is like it's it's uh, purely a engineer uh, project making that aircraft they don't have any pilots coming and saying hey it <laughs> right. would be nice to have uh, things uh, settled up like this well so, uh, you know we've gotten better with that there's still things that pop up uh, with updates and you know things like why would you why would you do that like that no pilot in the right mind would ever use that yeah. feature or need that feature but again you're probably right it's like go build this plane they yeah. built the plane and then gave it to the pilots yeah. tell them to figure it out yeah. What's your take on? I've I've been pretty vocal about this. I think Ukraine getting F-16s. There's a lot of complexities that go along with it. And I was like, if you just the the training challenges of going from a, a Soviet designed aircraft to a Western designed aircraft, I think there are going to be significant hurdles with that. You're operating in a very complex and dynamic environment with double digit SAMs, etc. With a fourth gen aircraft, so there's complexities with that. But I was like, even just the logistics and the supply chain just think about like our maintainers that make all this stuff happen that takes years and years of experience and expertise of turning wrenches soldering all the above uh that you just i, I don't think you can learn yeah wasn't it like uh, 
was a Churchill saying it takes like 10 days to uh, get rid of a, a capacity but it takes like 10 years to to rebuild again so of, of course it will take time and training so um, I mean it, it's just a, a fact of life I guess yeah I think I, I haven't heard that quote but I think that's right I mean it's a decade a de give a decade you build enough capacity you build enough expertise and depth of knowledge mm -hmm. in each respective field that all right, now you can go out there and play because an instructor pilot in a MiG-29 jumping over to an F-16, um, there's a a lot to learn before you can actually be a a sound instructor when it comes to the tactics and things like that, I think. Yeah, especially so. if you've got the different philosophy on, on, on tactics. So, Yeah, if you're going from a flight lead that, hey, here's the ROEs, here's the commander's intent, go out and conquer – a very close controlled mm. turn left turn right do this do that um that's a that's a big mind shift yeah, it is for sure so interesting well as we wrap up here uh i always like to ask my guests you know if you found a 15 16 year old met walking down the street is there any advice you would give him tell him to do something different um sage advice no I think it went, it went pretty good. Yeah, I'd yeah. say so. And then, uh, I might, are you going to keep flying the Mighty Viper as long as they let you? Or what's, what's the plan? Yeah, I, I hope to fly the uh, Viper until uh, we ship the last one off to uh, Argentina. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty solid. Well, Matt, thank you for taking the time today. It was great chatting with you. Great getting to, to know you a little bit. And if you're willing to hang around for a There I Was story, we'll, we'll get into that next. It was a pleasure. The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.